I've lost all ambition or worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. Lost all ambition, worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one. All right. Welcome, everyone. Today is Constitution Day, Citizen Day. I am uh, uh, very excited to share with you guys uh, the importance of uh, Constitution Day and what it means for us. So I've lined up some really great stuff for us to watch. Uh, and I think uh, the best thing we can do is listen to... Um, Marian Anderson uh, singing on April 9th, 1939 at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, something not a lot of people know about. And um, it's uh, quite incredible uh, because when she sang, it was done so because Eleanor Roosevelt asked for it. And, you know, it's 1939 and she's not the right color, apparently. And so Harold Dykes allowed her to perform, which sounds something that we can't believe was actually uttered or questioned. And um, there's a great uh, clip, uh, black and white, of course, uh, that I would like to share with you guys. And for those of you on the podcast to hear, um, it's uh, quite incredible um, and touching. So here we go, starting our Constitution Day. Genius, genius draws no color line. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. Miss Marian Anderson. Some very familiarized type faces to us. Uh, the White House is holding a conference on American history today, which is incredible. But what I think we need to uh, visit is uh, the Constitution um, and what it means. And so I found this incredible um, clip that is... Um, very intriguing in the way it was uh, put together that I'd love for us to listen and, and, and those that are watching and watch together as it um, inspires us to understand exactly what it is that we have right now 
in our hands and how this election ensures two things. Two things can come out of this. We either ensure that this stands as is, not a mere document that is always true in any situation, or it's death. And I'll explain more of that. History is filled with stories of rebellion and revolution, oppressor and oppressed. But for every dictator overthrown and noble victory achieved, too many revolutions have succumbed to either the siren call of new tyrants or descended into bloody chaos. So how is it that the United States, formed from its own eight-year war, managed to avoid these common pitfalls? How is it that no American king stepped forward to be crowned? That 13 fractious states chose to unify rather than go their separate ways? It was largely due to the leadership of a small group of visionaries who understood the lessons of the past and sought a new representative form of government. Leaders like George Washington, who were capable of compromise while pursuing a more perfect union. The American revolutionaries declared that government existed to protect fundamental rights. And when those rights were violated, that government could be overthrown. But what should fill the void? A government made too powerful could lead to tyranny. But without power to protect the rule of law and liberties of the people, anarchy. The trick was finding the right balance. During the War for Independence, the colonies had united under the Articles of Confederation. The bond formed under the Articles was weak at best. The Confederation Congress had no power to tax or coordinate foreign policy. The states, retaining much of their original sovereignty, even had their own separate currencies. Though the Americans had secured their independence under the Articles, it was increasingly evident that this weak government was no match for the diverging interests and priorities of the individual states. It was a union in name only. Though he had led the Americans to victory, General George Washington was unsure about the lasting stability of this new American nation. If the citizens did not find a way to set aside their regional interests for the greater good, America risked civil war or being picked apart by foreign powers. But he had relinquished his command and resumed a private life at Mount Vernon. Now, he said, it was the choice of the people, whether they will be respectable and prosperous, or contemptible and miserable as a nation. But his advice was ignored. 
The states were in debt from the war and acted with increasing self-interest. Some responded by printing paper money, causing rampant inflation. Others raised taxes on farmers, throwing them in jail when they could not pay. Without power to tax or enforce law, the Confederation Congress could do little but watch. It was so weak, it did not even have the power to enforce the peace treaty with Great Britain, whose forces lingered menacingly in American territory. Foreign policy consisted of begging for new loans to pay existing debts. By 1786, the Union was unraveling. Amending the Articles of Confederation required unanimous support of the 13 states, an impossible hurdle. To a growing number of the nation's political and intellectual leaders, a new lasting solution was needed. A new national constitution. But without widespread public support, could there really be any chance of reform? For the Constitutional Convention to have any chance of success, they needed the leadership of the only man known and trusted throughout the states. They needed George Washington. But Washington was reluctant to leave Mount Vernon and risk his hard-won reputation in a cause that was less than certain. That it is necessary to revise and amend the Articles of Confederation, I entertain no doubt, he uttered. But what may be the consequences of such an attempt is doubtful. In the fall of 1786, angry mobs of farmers, led by the Revolutionary War veteran Daniel Shays, went on the march through Massachusetts, protesting high taxes, closing courthouses, and threatening the armory in Springfield. Ultimately, Shays' rebellion was brought to a bloody halt, but the fear of further uprisings convinced Congress that action was needed. They called for a national convention to be held in Philadelphia in 1787. There are combustibles in every state which a spark may set fire to, Washington exclaimed. He agreed to attend the convention, concluding that reform of the present system is indispensable. He would wager his hard-earned reputation on the hope that the convention would succeed, not in revising the Articles of Confederation, but in drafting a new constitution that would create a truly national government. Every cent from our past is highlighted and Throughout May 1787, delegates from all over the Union arrived in Philadelphia. Luminaries like Benjamin Franklin and rising stars like Alexander Hamilton were in attendance. There were seven former governors, including Virginia's Edmund Randolph, and jurists like Pennsylvania's James Wilson. And there were relative newcomers like James Madison. Eventually, 55 men would serve at the conviction. And chairing this body, George Washington. Together, they had won the war. Now, they needed to secure the peace. Foreign powers had predicted the American experiment would fail. This convention sought to prove the world wrong. 
prevail over our world. The delegates agreed that they would write a new constitution. It was risky. They were only authorized by Congress to suggest amendments to the existing Articles of Confederation to proceed. They would work in secret. Windows were shuttered despite the summer heat, and oaths of secrecy were taken. It was thanks to James Madison's diligent note-taking that we even know what took place. There was little unity over many of the most important questions confronting the delegates. Smaller states, which had enjoyed equal representation in the existing government, feared they would lose sovereignty to the dominance of the larger states. Delaware's gunning Bedford warned that the small states would find some foreign ally if their autonomy was threatened. The larger states wanted representation based on population. James Wilson reminded the delegates, Can we forget for whom we are forming a government? Is it for men or for the imaginary beings called states? As the debate went on, two delegates from New York walked out, believing the convention had exceeded its mandate. If others left, the convention might collapse. Overseeing the debate, Washington grew anxious for a solution. Then Roger Sherman of Connecticut arrived with a proposal. It would come to be known as the Great Compromise. Sherman proposed a legislature split into two bodies. One would allocate representatives based on a state's population. The other would treat states as equals. Here was the birth of the House of Representatives and Senate. The Great Compromise broke the deadlock between large and small states, but left them with a new, troubling question. And uh, we have here several experts. The next challenge. How would enslaved people be counted for purposes of representation and taxation? In 1787, slavery existed in every state except Massachusetts. But the institution was most heavily concentrated on the plantations and farms of the southern states. This painful reality raised the question of how should states determine population. More to the point, who counts as a person? The southern state delegations, led by Charles Pinckney and Pierce Butler, sought to have slaves counted as part of their population, even though they were considered to be property by their owners. The southern delegates threatened to oppose any actions that would limit or constrain slavery. Some northern delegates were incredulous. Once again, faced with the threat of a mass defection and a doomed convention, the delegates reached yet another compromise. They agreed to count all slaves for purposes of representation as three-fifths of a person. Looking back through time, this three-fifths decision looks like a moral failure. But to the delegates, many who assumed that slavery was already fading away, this compromise was deemed necessary if the Constitutional Convention was to have any chance of success. Of course, what the delegates could not see is that this new Constitution left millions in bondage. 
and failed to extinguish the slow fuse that would ignite in bloody civil war. Seventy years later, the last challenge. Would the American people accept a powerful executive? The Articles of Confederation lacked one. Each state could overrule the others. There was nobody to transcend states' interests and represent the nations. Hamilton and Madison argued a powerful national leader was necessary. Madison's proposal, the Virginia Plan, offered a powerful single executive, balanced by a representative legislature and a judiciary. Others, including Edmund Randolph, questioned the nature of this executive, worrying that too much power in the hands of one person could lead to monarchy. Even Benjamin Franklin expressed concern. Though he expected Washington would likely be the first to serve as the chief executive, he worried that nobody knows what sort may come afterwards. But in the end, the proposal for a single executive carried, based largely on the hope that one man would lead the new government. George Washington. The public had been kept in the dark for months. What had the greatest minds of their country, their beloved General Washington, conceived? By the time the Constitution was ready for signing, 42 of the original 55 delegates remained in Philadelphia. Washington signed first, followed by the rest. Three delegates, George Mason, Elbridge Gerry, and Edmund Randolph, refused to sign, protesting the lack of a Bill of Rights. What they signed contained a mere seven articles, seven pieces that together formed a new government. The first three defined the branches of government, creating checks and balances between them. Three more outlined the relationship between the states and the federal government, along with the process for making amendments. And the seventh, established rules by which the new constitution could be adopted. The reaction was mixed. The Confederation Congress briefly considered censuring the delegates for exceeding their original mandate. But they concluded something needed to be done and that this new constitution was the best option. The states were called upon to form conventions to ratify or reject the new charter. At least nine states had to approve for it to take effect. Any less, the Constitution would be dead. Rival factions quickly formed. Some favored the new Constitution as a necessity. They became known as Federalists. Others, like the Patriot Patrick Henry, were skeptical. The Constitution had no guarantee of individual rights, like a free press and protections against unlawful prosecution. And they feared the executive could become a tyrant. The whole of Europe has been within that space for hundreds. Together, they were known as anti-federalists. In states where federalists held sway, ratification came quickly. Delaware was first voting unanimously in favor on December 7th. Five more states followed over the next two months. But six states were far from the nine required. Even worse, 
the largest and most powerful states, New York and Virginia, were deadlocked. Could there really be a United States without New York and Virginia? In Virginia, Patrick Henry and George Mason were the most vocal opponents of ratification, fearing its lack of safeguards for individual liberty. James Madison, with the quiet support of Washington, argued fervently in support of the Constitution. Two more states voted to ratify. Just one was needed for the Constitution, the new federal government, to be born. Who would be the ninth? Could New York be convinced to ratify? Could Virginia? Or would the United States be born in pieces? Would Washington suffer the indignity of seeing his native state reject the Constitution he worked so hard to conceive? On June 25th, 1788, Virginia's votes were cast. It was two days before the news reached Mount Vernon. Virginia's convention had compromised. They asked that a Bill of Rights be added to the Constitution. And they had voted to ratify by a margin of just ten votes. Unbeknownst to them, just four days earlier, New Hampshire had become the ninth state to ratify. They had ensured the United States would be born. Now, by its vote, Virginia had ensured the United States would live. Though he had remained publicly silent in the debate, the public's faith in George Washington's role at the Constitutional Convention played a vital role in Virginia's ascent. Be assured, wrote James Monroe in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, that Washington's influence carried the government. The new government now a certainty. And with the endorsement of Virginia, the remaining states, including New York, voted in favor. Rhode Island would be the last holdout, joining the Union in 1790. After ratification, the question now turned toward just who would lead this new government. It seemed a foregone conclusion that George Washington would be its first president. He had presided over the Constitutional Convention. He was trusted, beloved. Many had agreed to support ratifying the new charter because they believed Washington would assume a leadership role. But he was eager for a life of tranquility at his Mount Vernon estate. Letters from leaders throughout the states began to arrive, urging him to reconsider. No other man could bind the fractious nation together. Duty overcame desire. To deny the call, he realized, would see the country shipwrecked in sight of the port. He decided he would re-enter public life, if the voters wanted him. On April 14, 1789, the answer came by way of a messenger from Congress. It had taken several months to complete the tally. George Washington had been elected president by a unanimous vote of the electors. His leadership carried a nation ahead and into a realm unknown to humankind. There were rights to be guaranteed, a presidency to be defined, 
and a nation to be built from a collection of feuding states. There were rivalries to be healed and compromises to be made to ensure the great American experiment continued. Thanks to the leadership of George Washington and his fellow delegates, the former colonies were truly unified into one United States. Equipped with a representative government that was both balanced and empowered to serve the people. Now more than 200 years old, the U.S. Constitution has endured to become the world's oldest representative constitution in existence today. Born of compromise and enhanced through amendments, the Constitution continues to be the democratic bedrock of our more perfect union. So I hope that um, that gave you an insight of our history that is not told these days and how we had our declaration of independence, how all the colonies were like, yeah, let's totally work together. Now we're free. But everyone wanted power. Every single state wanted power. It's no different today than it was then. And like I've always said, before it was in the hands of that woman, before the ink was dry, they had already started planning planning on how they would topple the American experiment, how they would topple it. And so we saw the idea born that we would have one representative that would be balanced with legislators and the judicial, the legislative branch and the judiciary branch. And throughout time, as we see the power of the executive, was no longer enforced because it was the legislative and the judiciary that had taken that power. And if we look at it at another scale, look at your own states, how much power do they demand? How much power have they been demanding? How have they violated your rights? And how they've chucked away your constitutional rights with a pandemic. Because apparently during a pandemic, you have no rights. Apparently during a pandemic, you have no say. They are the ultimate authority. And here we have that issue of an overpowered legislative, a corrupt judiciary that does the bidding of interests that we are not privy to. And so it begins. As you notice, George Washington was a man who had a lot of money, a lot of land, and he just wanted a simple retirement. He did his thing, and he was like, I'm out. I got money. I got my land. I can sit down, and I can relax, and I don't. But he knew that if he sat back and he uh, dealt with his desire to retirement rather than this call of duty to represent his nation, that the nation would be gone in a matter of years. I mean, from the Declaration of Independence up until, uh, you know, the 
election of him as president, it was a mere what? A little over 10 years. Obviously, it was new then. And um, what I'm trying to point out is, as you could see, fires being set in states getting uh, over bloated personas, New York, uh, you know, is exactly what we're seeing today. History teaches us a lot. Now, many of you might say, well, why show us this? Aside from it's Constitution Day and you should know how it comes, I want to show you what the Democrats are going to use. What? That had nothing to do with the Democrats. What? Did you not hear about counting votes later and bringing it up? I mean, I already told you the media is going to say, oh, we won. Donald Trump did not win. We know best. Shut up. Anyone that says that Donald J. Trump won, you're banned. And the media will push and push and push. And they will begin the impeachment. And then they will be counting ballots, which they have erroneously printed on in many states. Oh, all made these mistakes. How do you make a mistake during the most important time ever? Mm. And see, there's supposed to be a balance of power, liberty, right? And power. Because we need to give them power in order to enforce the laws. But we also need our liberties. Well, tell me, kind of seems like they've been having a lot of power while we've been having a lot of not liberty, right? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And we're seeing it today. It is evident today that this is exactly what is happening. There is no change. And so remember the preamble, the preamble to our constitution is uh, pretty interesting. Um, it says, Everything we should be remembering every single day. We should be reciting this every single day. We should be moving it forward every single day. We should understand what it means and what it's supposed to represent. If we, the people, do not stand by our constitution then who will no one will stand by our constitution if we won't we the people of the united states in order to form a more perfect union establish justice to ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Now, that is something we all need to remember. And what better than to listen to this constitutional lecture from Hillsdale to understand how it should be and how it will be coming to fruition soon. Hi, I'm Dr. Thomas West. Hillsdale College. Uh, I teach in the politics department. I'm a professor of politics. And my talk today is going to be on natural rights and the American Revolution. And the topic is a good one because it indicates two things. One is a theory, a theoretical concept, natural rights. And the other is a historical event rooted in a time and place, the American Revolution. So in order to understand our founding, I, it's important, I think, to grasp the connection between theory and practice between the ideas that motivated uh, or that helped the founders to structure their activities and actions against Britain. And at the same time, to understand what the practical fight was all about 
with the British that led to American independence. In the period leading up to the revolution and independence in 1776, people uh, in the colonies had been pretty much left alone by the British with some exceptions. There was a long period uh, in which there was a kind of uneasy truce, you might say, between the colonial legislatures elected by the colonists and the royal governor sent over from the king and from Britain. And there was, a, there was a rivalry there. The colonial legislatures tended to get their way, much to the chagrin, often, of the British officials. But And that was an arrangement that lasted for quite a while. But then there was the French and Indian War, which changed everything. That war concluded in 1763 with a Treaty of Peace that then led both sides, both the British and the Americans, to think very differently about their relationship with each other. From the British side, uh, they became increasingly impatient with the colonists now that there was no longer the French threat on the northern border to, uh, to worry about. They needed the colonists to fight the French, which had been a theme throughout the 18th century, but now the French were defeated. They're gone as a serious power in North America, and it's up to then it became the British, uh, the British Empire. But that meant that uh, they didn't, the British government didn't have to treat the colonists so politely. And they also pointed out, you colonists, we've been defending you all this time, and you haven't been paying taxes, or at least not very many taxes. So we're going to do something about that. We're going to start taxing you, and we're also going to start making it clear to you that you're part of the empire, and you have to obey us. On the colonial side, of course, and the Americans' attitude was, now that the French threat is gone, we don't need the British as much. So all that time when the British were saying, you know, you need us, and they did need, the colonists did need the British forces to, uh, with respect to the French. Now it was, let's, let's go off on our own, and at least, or at least let's not be pressed and pushed around by the British. There was not an immediate desire for independence in 1763, but the attitude of the Americans was, Let's not let the British push us around anymore. Let's stick to our own way of doing things and and make the British acknowledge that. That led to the crisis that started in the 1760s, 70s, leading up to the uh, actual Declaration of Independence in 1776. What the colonists were doing throughout this period is not just reacting in a visceral way to their desire to be free, but they also had at their uh, ha at, at hand ready at hand, a doctrine of natural rights and natural law, which had been around the colonies for quite a while. These ideas had uh, come into the colonies sometime around 1710 or shortly thereafter, uh, became widely known and discussed in the colonies throughout that period uh, between uh, 1710 and the end of the French and Indian War, uh, 50 years later. And the Americans, therefore, uh, were able to say, look, it's not just a matter of our, not of our wish to not be dominated by you people, you British. It's also, we have a right to be free. We have a right to self-government. And uh, the British, of course, in response said, no, you don't. You're part of the empire. You have to obey the parliament. And that's the story. That's the end of it. We might compromise. We might let you have a little freedom. But that was the gist of what happened. So what the appeal to the natural rights doctrine, which uh, began in earnest in the 1760s, was uh, was an appeal to a doctrine that is claimed that claims to be universally true for all human beings everywhere, and that's what gave the revolution its peculiar flavor of not just being a local quarrel between this and that group, but a quarrel that was made in the name of a universal principles of natural law, natural rights, of something that is true 
now and forever, and will always be true about human relationships. That teaching of the, of the natural law is stated all over the place in founding era documents. You could find in the Declaration of Independence, most famously. You see it in state after state. Each state, uh, states that put together constitutions, most of them had bills of rights, had statements of principle. These doctrines were widely held. Uh, you hear occasionally some people will say, well, that was just Jefferson's idea and he was influenced by the French. That's ridiculous. That these ideas had been around the colonies for 60 years by that time and widely accepted and known and became officially part of the record in that, uh, in the revolution. And what you find in these state constitutions, uh, is various restatements of the same ideas that are in the Declaration of Independence and they help to clarify. So in the Declaration, you have all men are created equal. And that has led lots of people to make all kinds of assumptions about men and women, about blacks and whites, about and so on. It's about it's not about human equality in the sense of we're all the same. It's about human equality in the sense of no one has the right to dominate anybody else without their consent. The founders had a way of uh they had different formulations of this. Uh for example, Virginia, all men are by nature equally free and independent. Or Massachusetts, all men are born free and equal. These were different versions of the same thought, that no one has the right to rule another. That there is a and then that was also put in moral language in terms of rights and natural law. So the right, the natural right idea arises from the notion that not only are we born equal in the sense nobody's ruling, we also have a right, a moral claim that we can make on behalf of that state of we do belong, we do deserve to be equally and free and equally free. And from that then comes the idea of a natural right to liberty, from which in the founders' minds, all the other rights in, it, in one way or another can be derived. Once you're, if you have a right to be free, not to be ruled by another, it means that means the right not to be assaulted, not to be killed by another, thus the right to life. If you have the right to be free to use your own mind and your own body to acquire property, that means you have a right to, to property. If you have a right not to be dominated in the way you worship God, that's a religious freedom right. The basic idea is all men are born free in the sense that everybody who is part of a government ought to have given that person his or her consent to be part of that government. So let me just stop right there. So think about the situation that our nation is right now, the situation that we are in at the moment. It's quite daunting, isn't it? It's daunting on the fact that, you know, we, we have given consent to these clowns. We have given them consent to take and do as they please, like it or not, we have. And liberty, liberty is something that is innate, right? You are born, but to breathe the fresh air of liberty, we must not fear to speak the words of freedom. Freedom comes from within. It is not something handed to us. We must be willing to sacrifice for it. Those are the words of General Flynn. Now, that is very important today, considering it's Constitution Day and how people will roll over in, in their minds for what is the common good to keep the peace rather than stand up and speak the truth. 
They're more concerned about being accepted by the person next to them, uh, a group of people, a city, a state, a nation, just whatever it is. When all of us should be standing, nobody has any right to impose or dominate you. No one does. You give them that right. You allow them to take your power away. That is what we have been doing for the the sake of, what, the greater good, have they told us? And all laws in our nation state that. But for some reason, we have foregone all of that. And the question one might ask is, well, where did we go wrong? (laughs) Well, should we begin with the beginning of time when man manifested here and began? Because this isn't the first time. This isn't the first time these questions have been set. It is not the first time that people are found at this press. This is why. What is coming cannot be stopped. It is a cycle until you break that cycle. And the only way you break that cycle is to understand exactly who you are and the power that you have foregone. (laughs) It's funny how back then in the 1700s there were fires, how in the 1400s there were fires, how in the 1100s there were fires, how in BC times there were fires. I'm just saying. Past always proves the future. The one thing that is sure is the now, right? You have the now. The yesterday could be changed because the now today has changed. The one thing that you can change is the tomorrow or the next second. So how is it that you change the tomorrow to ensure that it's the tomorrow that you desire by reclaiming your power back from these people? I had a, an extensive conversation yesterday with someone who is quite high up there on the global leadership scale and said, I heard your show and you said that you will impeach and remove every senator and congressman if, if the people choose to, not me, myself. And he said, that can't happen. We have laws. Who made those laws? The people. Exactly. And the people can get rid of those laws and say, I really don't care. If you get every single constituent in your vicinity, in your county or in your city to say, I do not care what the law said. I care about today. And we, as the people are saying, this is not working for us. So you're out. Pretty simple. Taking your power back. See, the systems that were created initially to maintain those liberties and to allow you to enjoy those liberties were slowly chipped away with little alterations and laws and regulations and charters and city charters, county charters, state charters, state constitutions, all of them, fine-tuned. And for some reason, everyone feels powerless. Well, there's a process where they're telling us we have to collect so many signatures. Well, get up off your butt and let's go. And not get those signatures. Tell them we have more than those signatures. You're out now, today. Citizen arrest, we're booting you. Take a box in your plant and pack it and go. You can do that. And this is not in the sense of 
anarchy. This is a sense of this is not working. Okay. And you, Miss Pelosi, have destroyed your city. You, Miss Pelosi, have made laws and regulations that you do not abide for. You are above the law. You have enriched yourself. You have made money off the backs of the people. And I don't care what these laws say. In my eyes, you deserve not only to be impeached, but arrested for crimes that you have committed. Where are the people of San Francisco? This that we have here, and I say it again, we are only free on paper. We have not been free (laughs) even before the ink was dry. So it is up to the people to understand that we actually have a president in office, an executive branch that is by the people for the people. And yet the other two branches that are supposed to promote those checks and balances are highly tipped in one way, which is that of power. So as you listen to this lecture, have that in mind of how it applies or not to today's America. Equality then can be understood to be a moral claim in two ways. One is it's about the moral rights and obligations of human beings to each other. And uh, as I said just now, the basic right, right to liberty and all the other rights that follow from it. And the other is a claim about the right to rule. Who has the right to rule? Born equally free and independent uh, means not born into a slave relationship or subordinate relationship. Uh, understand, of course, when they talked about this, they didn't mean children. They always understood children are under the temporary control or wardship of their parents. But that was always understood to be uh, a wardship that was a preparation for freedom once the children grow up. There was no idea of patriarchy throughout life in the founder's conception. Once you've reached the age of majority, let's say 21, typically in American law at that time, you're free, free of your parents. And from then on, you are free, you are free of everything unless it's the laws that you've given your consent to obey. And it's that consent, it's that giving of consent collectively that is what creates a nation, creates a people that is then to be governed by a particular form of government. Uh, founders use the term social compact to mean the agreement we all make with each other, fellow citizens make with each other, to uh, form a government and to accept the rules made by that government. And once you're in the social compact, you then become an exclusive body apart from the rest of humanity. And they, uh, the government you're creating is for you, you, your fellow citizens, and protection of you and your rights. It's only for the, not for the protection of the rest of mankind and their rights. So what does it mean to be free and equal in a daily, day-to-day situation? I like to use the example of a job. When you apply for a job, you are saying to the employer, I have something valuable to offer you, my labor, and if you offer me something valuable, let's say pay, a salary, we'll make an agreement. And the agreement is an agreement between equals. I agree to be ruled by you insofar as I'm employed by you. You agree to pay me. And it's a relationship of subordination. It's not a relationship of permanent subordination. That would be slavery. It's an employment contract always has limits, 
beyond which the employer is not allowed to go in order to protect the life, liberty, and property of the employee. But that's one example, a simple example of how equality works in practical life and day-to-day life. Now, the idea of consent of the governed is uh, fundamental to the founding. And in fact, the revolution itself was primarily fought in the name of consent because it was the, the issue was, can the British impose taxes upon our people without the consent of our own locally elected legislative bodies? And the answer was, no, they can't. And uh, that has to be, that can, taxes and any form of government intrusion on our life, liberty, or property has to be with the agreement of the people who live under that government. And that has to be expressed through elected legislatures or through democracy where people get together in person as say in a New York, uh, a New England township. Now that consent, what did that actually mean in practice in terms of structuring government? Do we want to have a legislative body? Is it a good idea to have an executive? Uh, what about judging? What about courts? All of that had to be worked out and thrashed out. And that was an area where a lot of the disagreements in the founding uh, came forward. It was a general agreement on consent in the form of elections, general agreement that government needed to have some kind of an executive for prosecutions, for directing the armed forces, for dealing with sudden problems like uh, an uprising, you know, or organizing the militia. But basically, uh, there was agreement. The disagreements in terms of structure of government uh, I'm not going to go into today. That's going to be the topic of the next couple of talks in this series. Uh, what I'm going to focus on today is the subject uh, of what government is supposed to do once it's formed. The Declaration of Independence has a nice formulation. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. To secure these rights. What does that mean? What does security of rights mean? You can also look at the state constitutions and say, how did they describe the purpose of government? Was it the same? Was it security of rights? And the answer is, well, they used, sometimes they often, they use different language. One of the terms that was often used as the, to explain the purpose of government is the word protection. Protection is what the uh, government is supposed to do, meaning protection against harm to your own life, liberty, and property. And that protection is to, has two sides. Uh, it, it's the side of the national government against, against the uh, outsiders, potential foreign attack, and protection against your fellow citizens who might harm you in, the, uh, in harm your life, liberty, or property because of their, because they're misbehaving. So, um, Protection, uh, there's a, you know, let me just give you an example from the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Government ought to be instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people, nation, or community. So that's what to secure these rights means. Protection, benefit of protection and security of the people, of the people, nation, or community. Again, the emphasis is not. Again, the emphasis should be today, where are those state constitutions? Didn't you forfeit your rights and invest in them the power to govern you, to lecture you, to put you in your place in exchange of safety? Where is the safety? 
Where is the safety right now to the people of Oregon, to the people of Washington, to the people of California, to the people of New York City, and to every single American in this nation that has been locked up in their home? Where is the protection? Where is the protection of the federal government overseeing the state's governments when your governors that have their own state constitutions decide to build FEMA camps to take away your kids? Where are they? You forfeited your right. You've all you got is a sucker. That's what all of us are suckers. We gave them all these rights and they have provided zero protection. Instead, in the name of protection, they have taken away all your rights. And so what do we do? I mean, this is a revolution. And what we see is that the anarchists are not there. See, anarchy is refusing the government, not wanting to give them any power to be empowered. That's like super extreme. But if you're thinking of that, think of it. If these anarchists were really anarchists, right, would they be getting paid by the politicians that have taken away your rights? Would they be supported by the politicians that have been taking away every single breath of liberty that you might have left in your body? Absolutely not. So they are nothing but a show. So the people need to understand we have an executive leader for the people, by the people, standing on top of the other two branches of government that are pulling at his feet while they're sucking off of you, your life force, the power that you gave them. So how do we fix this would be the question. Well, I think the way he gets into this right now kind of gives us a little bit of an answer. Come on, it's on, it's on our people. The government is not protecting people in Mexico or Canada or elsewhere in the world. Uh, that's a subject that is often misunderstood today. There's an assumption today that if there's human rights are universal, it's the job of every government in the world to protect rights all over the world. The founders rejected that idea completely and totally. Uh, another example from the New Jersey Constitution preamble, uh, the King of Great Britain has refused protection to the good people of these colonies. Therefore, we have a right to revolution. Refused protection. That was the one word. You're not protecting us against injury. And in fact, as New Jersey went on to say, is you're attacking us. You're harming us. You're harming our people. You're putting soldiers here and shooting at us. So um, then the question becomes, well, all right, what policies does the government have to adopt in order to do this protecting of the people? Um, so the first point, of course, is protecting for protection against outsiders by means of armed forces, by means of what we call foreign policy. Diplomacy, statecraft, negotiation, perhaps making alliances. But in the end, it comes down to, do you have soldiers in the field who can physically defeat a potential or an actual threat to the life, liberty, and property of American citizens? So this first part of government's protection or protective duty is um, about armed forces. And that, of course, does include border enforcement. Uh, one of the points of having a nation of your own is it's for the people who live here. Anyone who wants to come here has to ask permission. 
and permission is not automatic. It's given again by consent of the governed, by the consent of the people who live here. The idea of a universal right to immigrate to a nation that says, I don't want you here. Founders would have said, no, that's, that's immoral. That's a violation of the moral principle that all men are created equal and that we therefore who have created our own government have a moral right to say, who will be our future fellow citizens? Uh, that's our duty and our right, uh, not someone else's. The second part of protection and what government has to do to protect is, uh, is to create laws against crimes. That's the most urgent part of the, uh, of the domestic politics side of the founders argument. And so one of the uh, topics that came up early on in America in, in, during the revolution and, and, uh, in its aftermath was to create constitutions and laws to, uh, protect citizens. Criminal laws, for example. Uh, Jefferson had a great quote on that in his, uh, he, he put together a proposed revision of the laws of the state of Virginia, uh, in, uh, 1778, uh, in which he states that, uh, it's precisely because vicious and, uh, immoral men who try to take away the rights of other people that we have criminal law. And without criminal law, he said, the purpose of society would not be achieved, by which he meant protection and security of life, liberty, and property. So if you ask people today, sometimes I'll ask my students, how does the government secure our rights? They'll often give you a statement like, well, that's what the Supreme Court is for, and they have rules against discrimination and so on. Well, the founders would say, no, government protects your rights, not just through the judiciary, but through all three branches of government. You have to have a legislature to make laws. You have to have an executive to carry out arrests and prosecutions and uh, punishments and a judiciary to decide, is this person who's accused by the government truly guilty or not guilty? You need all three branches. That's what makes government protection possible through criminal law. And, uh, and that's what we see, you know, occasionally there are TV shows based on this idea of, you know, trials, people prosecute. That's how it's supposed to work. One of the uh, characteristic features of government today in America is the deprioritization of criminal law enforcement. Um, not everywhere, but especially in major cities of America today, um, the ability of, of uh, police and prosecutors to to, to find criminals, prosecute them successfully, and have them punished is minimal. Uh, there are some cities in which the uh, police, if they're called out on a, a theft, if you call the police and say, somebody stole something out of my house, they'll go, okay, we'll fill out a report for you. You can take it to the insurance company. But no, we're not going to look into it. Founding fathers would say, you guys don't get what government is for. It's for protection. And protection means you have to deter crime. By making it clear to people who commit crimes, they're going to pay a penalty. So, you know, figure out why, you know, what, what's wrong? What happened? Why, why do our priorities somehow go somewhere else? And if you ask police departments today or prosecuting, they'll say, well, we don't have a budget for it. Which means something has gone wrong at the level of the state legislature or at the level of city government where money is being spent on something less that is of lower priority than actual protection of the lives and properties of citizens.
That's a problem from the point of view of the founders, but it is the way we do government today. Uh, one could sum up the founders' conception of law enforcement that was developed during the revolution in, uh, in, two, fra- in two phrases, equal protection of the laws and due process of law. Equal protection meaning, in the founders' view, equal protection meant when there's, when there's going to be a rule, a general rule that applies to everybody. It will define what crimes are and it'll say what the penalties are going to be. And government's duty is to provide equal protection. So no matter how wealthy the perpetrator might be, what race he might be, or the sex of the person committing the crime, government has the same obligation to prosecute and punish in the same way anyone who does the, who commits the crime. Uh, that's a, um, that's fundamental. But precisely because government is so strong and powerful when it's engaging in this activity of protecting, it also needs to follow procedures called due process of law, meaning you don't just take somebody and punish them without giving them a chance to defend themselves. So government has to prove its case, in theory at least, in court for any significant punishment to take place. Uh, for a person to be deprived of liberty or property or money, um, trial, a right to defend, a right to call witnesses, a right to speak to about to a cross-examine, to deal with uh, whatever uh, you need to do, bring forward whatever you need to bring forward in order to show, if you can, I didn't do that. I wasn't, I'm not guilty. Uh, those two concepts, equal protection of the law and due process of law, were later embodied in the 14th Amendment, which was meant to take the basic founders' political theory of what government's supposed to do that was developed during the American Revolution, and then apply it to the states. Each state was, uh, from then on, obliged by the federal constitution to provide the same protection of the laws and of the due process of law uh, that, that was already required and expected at the federal level in its own law enforcement jurisdiction. One of the early debates in America was over, do we need a federal government? And if so, what should be its scope and its powers? The founders came up with a very simple way of dividing up that labor. The federal government was going to be primarily responsible for foreign policy, the state governments for domestic policy, with some exceptions. But basically, uh, the federal government didn't really have a whole lot to do in early American history other than foreign policy. Now, there were some exceptions to that. The state's uh, government, federal government was given some powers to regulate commerce, to basically to maintain a national free market, and so on. But that those were general exceptions. Generally, the states handled things having to do with property law, commerce, and um, contracts, things of that kind. And I'll be talking about that in, in a talk I give later on in the series. Um, Today, when we teach American government in um, college, we often tend to focus on the national government. That's, of course, the exciting part, the big, you know, the one that everyone notices. And, of course, today the feds have become so important, we tend to forget the role of the states, which still remains quite powerful even today. Uh, I believe I believe the percentage of court cases uh, that are handled at the federal and versus the state level is about about over ninety percent still are state court cases. Among-
which tells you what it tells you that they do things that you may not want to know about. So I'm going to jump to this portion of it quickly. Here we go. Because they hold the same political principles. And he does mention that, but also because they are quote, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs. And Jay's point partly was, if it hadn't been for all those things we already had in common prior to forming the union, we might not have been able to do it. Liberty is only possible to be established in the founders' minds if the people are capable of supporting liberty and living according to the requirements of liberty. There are many cultures in the world today, and there were then too, where the people who live in these places don't like freedom and have no experience of freedom. The founders, in fact, doubted openly whether places like Latin America or even some places in Europe could ever maintain a regime of political freedom. Uh, natural rights belong to everyone in the founders' view, but it you have the right, obviously, you have the right to create a free country, but you don't always have the ability to. It depends on who lives there and what their attitudes are and how good their leadership is. Um, in some cases, the founders pointed out, you can't have consent of the governed if you're going to have any kind of protection of the rights of the individual. Uh, there was a revolution in Haiti that took place during the 1790s, and people in the founding were saying, they're not going to be able to have a free government there. They're not going to have elect. You can't have an elective government in Haiti. Probably a military despotism is the best they're going to do. That was a quote from Hamilton. And uh, Jefferson held the same view when he was asked about Latin America in the 18, 1820s. He said, look, this is a place that's going to be really difficult to form any kind of uh, solid, uh, lasting, free government there. I hope they can do it, he said. They ought to. They deserve it. But it's going to be tough. The founders had answers as to how to keep the population morally capable of being free. They didn't think it would work everywhere, but they did think it would work here. I'll talk about that later in the series. How exceptional is that? So our founders were uh, pretty much trying to frame and outline how the United States of America can make it work. But can you see now where it broke down? Because in 2020, we are seeing how that broke down, how we forfeited little by little. See, in other nations and throughout time, they have forfeited their rights. They have monarchs. They have military uh, generals running them, uh, right? But... In the United States of America, it was just you, and it was kind of wild, and it was kind of like, even in tribes, in you know, from the days of yore to now in Africa, it's always bloodline, the chief's child or whatever, and uh, they are some holy person, so they are in charge. Here, nobody is holier than thou. Here, nobody is, uh, you know, of a specific pedigree that is allowed, yet... What do we see in D.C.? All of the same. They're all cut from the same 
cloth. No difference to a tribe having a chief and his son taking over and ruling with an iron fist or having some religious figure that is going to say off with their head. So can you see now with a president like the one that we have in office, what the transparency he is providing is showing you. Today, I said was going to be a big day, and indeed, it has turned out so. Declassification notification has been sent. So we are getting declass on those FISA warrants today. And I did tell you, today was going to be Citizens Day, Constitution Day, because, you know, the only way that you can indeed maintain your liberties is with transparency. So... Gone are the days of no transparency, yet, yet, there are many things that I, even myself, believe that, and I shouldn't, but I say this in opinion-wise, right? This is opinion, and I am against my opinion, even though it is my opinion. (laughs) Kind of contradictory, but so true. Every single man, woman, and child within this nation or on this planet has the right to full transparency. Though you have to think, how can you tell a people all of the truth without annihilating them? People that know the truth cannot sleep. People, humans, people, mere people, they cannot sleep. They cannot think. They do not wish to wake up the next day because everything that they've been taught, everything within their fabric, everything that they've experienced, eaten, cried over, laughed over is all an illusion. How can you survive that? And, you know, I'm speaking for experience, from experience on this one. Uh, when you realize that your solid bedrock and foundation that you had as a safe place was a mere illusion. You thought it was rosy, nice, and just right. Turned out to be the pits of hell. You have no idea what that does to you. Time, it's been, you know, nine months, a little over nine months, and I'm still coming to terms with that myself. And that's on a micro scale, right? And this is coming from someone that has played with some fancy computers <laughs> and fancy devices that is okay with uh, the illusions and the facade because I know the truth. I say this. You can say I don't. I say I do. I mean, I know. It's a conversation that I um, had with someone. There's uh, someone I know who suffers from mental illness and they're on medications. And one person I know turned around and said, Oh, well, you just said you sound so stupid. And the person, you know, with the drugs that they have in them, the one thing it does is give them assurance. And they said, well, I don't think I'm stupid. It's like, huh? Very assertive. It was it for me. It made me cock my head because none of us make that statement If you call me stupid, I'll be like, I'm not stupid. You're stupid. And that person said, well, I don't think I'm stupid. No one would really say that in an assertive fashion, right? When someone says something like that to you. Why do I say this? When this person is on medications to drown out emotions where only logic um, 
where only logic exists, they're very able, I say, they're enabled to have assertive statements and thoughts. So emotion, which is what makes us human, clouds our ability to make assertions because those emotions are influenced by things around us. So again, here I go. I would say, look at the way that people ran out to go get toilet paper. You think they're ready for all the truth and nothing but the truth? So help me God. I don't know. I would say no. And yet other people would say, and I would say to myself, well, that's a little bit hypocritical because transparency gives it all. So in the name of transparency, we have a thousand people standing on this planet. You throw this boulder of truth at them and maybe there's no one standing. Think. I mean, that is a dilemma that is not up to me to decide. This is an opinion. I would always decide against my opinion and say transparency is key or else I wouldn't be on here talking. Transparency is key. And even though my opinion and my gut says, don't do it, there's a thousand people, there might not be one left with that smack of truth. Well, I'm okay with that because truth is above all. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just pointing this out that I do not believe that you know, full transparency and disclosure should be made to people. And unfortunately, because it is a uh, generations upon generations upon generations of being spoon fed. That's my opinion. But my actions go contrary to my opinion, which is, well, transparency is necessary. And I mean, I don't want to set the world on fire, but, you know, let's take an intermission. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your so, like I said, I don't want to set the world on fire, but I guess, you know, you have to. And you have to start slowly because the truth is um, something that everybody needs. I mean, how do you have informed consent? How do you know what's going on? How do you know how to proceed without the facts, right? Informed consent. But the question is, how um, how is it that you can provide how can you open people's eyes and ears simultaneously without them shutting it out because of fear? We do that. I mean, it's well documented. How many of you have had traumatic experiences that you blocked out and then suddenly they come to the forefront? That is uh, uh, our way of coping with change and something that is traumatic to us. So it's important um, to understand that uh, transparency is key, but it has to be done right. I mean, it took me three years to put out this whole Mediterranean thing. And you know what was funny? I found a post on my Facebook from 2015 where Putin had said it with his own mouth. 
that if Turkey, you know, gets aggressive with all this oil exploration and turns Hagia Sophia into a mosque, <laughs> make no mistake, that's a declaration of war. He said that five years ago. <laughs> Look at it coming to roost now. I mean, he did say it with his own words, and I was shocked that um, I had documented that because, as always, I always have all these little screens of information, and they tend to pop up almost um, unexplainably. How? So think of it this way. The president could have told you in February and in January and in of this year and before that, hey, you know, these people are so conniving. They're going to lock you in your houses. They're going to make you terrified to touch other people. They're going to make you wear masks and muzzles. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to. I could have told you that too. I mean, the world, anybody could have told you that, but you wouldn't believe it. You'd be like, come on, stop. We're not going to be staying locked up in our house. Are you kidding? Wearing masks? What am I, dog with a muzzle? They're not going to make us all go online and kill our jobs and people running out to buy toilet paper. Shut up. And so be it. And then everyone was waiting for the president to shut down the nation. Right. Shut down the nation. And I wrote that article before he made that decision. And what did I say? Nope, nope, nope. If we want to use the strategy and we want to give transparency, what do we have to do? Let the people see for themselves the power that their mayors and the governors yield. So they understand that it's not the president doing these things. It is them the more direct, the more local officials. And, I mean, if he told you, your governor, nah, 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 your mayor, nah, 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 you'd be like, oh, shut up, President Trump. What do you know? My governor would never do that. He wouldn't send people into nursing homes to kill them with body bags. No, no, no. Shut up, Trump. I could just picture it now if he told you. But instead, he did exactly what I said he would. Allow the people to see. Let them see. Hey, Portland, there's a lot of right. They're, they're like taking out federal buildings. I mean, you're going to do something. <laughs> hey, Portland, you're on fire. And the fires seem to not want to pass. I guess they have a preference for Canadian land and Mexican land, you know, or American land. And now they're pushing out east. What are you doing? <laughs> this is all climate change. Is it really climate change? Remember how Putin said he doesn't want to see fires and things coming down from the sky? He said it. He said it. But, you know, that's the thing. You can't tell people. You have to show people. So when you give them information, it has to be done at the right time, at the right place. Because, you know, sometimes when you tell people things too early, they forget. You know, uh, I... I told you guys that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton was getting arrested and everyone's like, she's not arrested. But if you remember correctly, it was in, uh, November 1st, was it? Or October 31st that I had Laura Loomer. I gave her an exclusive video of Hillary Clinton with government vouchers at an airport flying coach because they were under arrest. Their transport was being executed by the federal government. But you know, it's BS. That was 2017. It's such a lie. Was it though? I mean, there was video proof. Was it though? Hmm. Been telling you about the National Guards for a very, very long time. Pay attention. Pay attention. National Guard, pay attention. Nobody listens. It's all about uh, proof. I need proof. I need you to be verified by millions of people. Kind of like, you know what I saw today and I got so 
agitated. So Jack Posobiec, who's followed by almost a million people, put out his, oh, I know the siege to take the White House and did a report. Wow. Millie Weaver's been reporting that for months. What do you mean you broke that report? Millie Weaver was actually invited twice at the White House when she was putting that report together. What do you mean? You broke that. Who are you to break what and how did you investigate? Because you don't have infiltrators. We do. You don't have people sitting as and posing as part of the Sunrise Movement, as part of Antifa, as part of all these things. There's a story, by the way, breaking soon about Antifa. Millie Weaver's putting that together, and I will have a follow-up article on that. So think. Look at who you've invested into for the news. OAN is great. Same shit. Different name. All interests. I mean, look at it. The question should be how things are done. See, I, I, I said this before, RT, Russian Times, is genius. They're genius in the way they balance the fake news and the real news. Super balanced. This is why they're more trusted than any other organization ever, which, by the way, they're registered as a foreign acting agent within the United States. But for some reason, Al Jazeera, that actually owns your local papers, right? And they're Qatar funded, you know, Qatar, that has the headquarters for the Taliban. Yeah, they fund them. Aren't? I'm glad that the president yesterday said that they have to. (laughs) You're going to be real busy, Covington, Uh, real busy. So the question that you need to be asking yourself is you gave power to these journalists to be your voice. You did. You follow them. You retweet their things. You like their things. You're giving them your power to be your voice of news. You're doing it same way as you did with the politicians. So where does it end? Where does it end? The whole, I'm going to, uh, you know, take and reclaim my power back and my liberty back. Where does it end? None of the mainstream media agencies, none of them are without interests, are without interests. None of them. They all have big pocket advertisers. You should rely on yourself. And when you invest your time, your money, your retweets, your likes, your shares to people that don't support your liberties and your nation, then you are adding to the slavery that you are undergoing. And you know, in that, on that note, I wanted to play a piece where Attorney General Barr actually brought up slavery when he was referring to the quarantine during the pandemic. That was pretty badass, if you ask me. I was like, yeah, go Barr. That's what's up. Take a listen to this. Elected officials should decide the response to the pandemic, not the scientists. It was one of a series of eye-opening statements that Barr made at a forum last night. He also lashed out at some of the Justice Department's own career officials. As Catherine Herridge reports, Barr also brought up slavery in the context of the coronavirus. Putting a national lockdown 
stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. At a conservative Constitution Day event in Virginia last night, Attorney General Bill Barr said this of quarantining nationwide. It's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. Barr suggested that politicians, not medical professionals, should guide the public during the pandemic. The person in the white coat is not uh, the grand seer who, who can come up with the right decision for society. A free people makes its decision through its elected representative. In the wide-ranging discussion, Barr also criticized the Black Lives Matter movement. Proposition, who can quarrel with the proposition Black Lives Matter, but they're not interested in black lives. They're interested in, they're interested in props. A small number of blacks who were killed by police during uh, conflict with police, usually less than a dozen a year, who they can use as props to achieve a much broader political agenda. But the data shows that 250 black people were killed by police last year alone. Black people are more than three times more likely to be killed during a police encounter than white people. The attorney general also seemed to take aim at some of his own people. Our prosecutors have all too often inserted themselves into the political process based on the flimsiest of legal theories. Barr criticized his prosecutors for political headhunting and defended criticism that he ever interfered in cases involving close associates of the president, like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Letting the most junior members set the agenda might be a good philosophy for a Montessori preschool, but it is no way to run a federal agency. And then denied he's ever interfered on Mr. Trump's behalf. And I'm saying, what do you mean by interfere? Under the law, all prosecutorial power is vested in the attorney general. And these people are agents of the attorney general. And as I say to FBI agents, whose agent do you think you are? Now, I don't say this in a pompous way, but that, that is the chain of authority and legitimacy in the Department of Justice. These remarks come as CBS News has confirmed that Barr encouraged U.S. attorneys on a call last week to seek federal charges for violent demonstrators, including the rarely used sedition law, which can lead to fines and imprisonment for anyone found guilty of threatening the U.S. government. And cue music. So what did Barr say? He said, who do you think the FBI reports to? Right? Who is the one that reports to Barr? That would be Ray. So anything Ray says is not law. It's not the Justice Department. It's Barr. And even though Ray may say, oh, this, 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 it is Barr that says, nope, it's actually this, this, and this. That's the way it is. So he made it clear of how that is done. Here's another clip from his speech that I haven't found in full yet um, on what he had to say about some prosecutors. We want our prosecutors to be aggressive and tenacious in their pursuit of justice, but we also want to ensure that justice is ultimately administered dispassionately. 
And we're all human. And like any person, a prosecutor can become overly invested in a particular goal. Prosecutors who devote months and years of their lives to investigating a particular target may become deeply invested in their case and assured of the rightness of their cause. When a prosecutor, when a prosecution becomes my prosecution, particularly if the investigation is highly public or has been acrimonious or if the prosecutor is confident early on that the target has committed a serious crime, there's always a temptation to will a prosecution, a charge into existence, even when the facts, the law, or the fair-handed administration of justice do not support bringing the charge. There's yet another reason for having layers of supervision. Individual prosecutors can sometimes become headhunters. It's all too often. They're consumed with taking down their target, subjecting their decisions to review by detached supervisors ensure the involvement of dispassionate decision makers. Hmm. Kind of sounds like the headhunter on my ass, you know, couldn't find any crimes, have no criminal records. So he just goes civil. That's what it is. Ham sandwiches. That's what's up. And they become headhunters. And when they become headhunters, they become the criminals because they abuse and weaponize exactly the law. And they become overzealous. Oh, I'm sure that there is a law that was broken. And all, all the colonoscopies you did with your whole state I'm using my personal, right? Let's just, president, we've already seen it publicly. Colonoscopies galore and absolutely zilch, but let's go civil anyway, just to ridicule and humiliate and do. That's a witch hunt. That is a headhunter. That is not someone righteous enough to hold any position in our state, in our federal, any government, because they're tied to what? their own agenda, which then leads to Rico sedition. I'm just saying not, not my case. Rico. My case is Rico. <laughs> yeah, it is Rico. I mean, if you think about it, considering why and when and the timing, but that'll come later. Remember 12 attorney generals had presidential transition team emails from Barack Hussein Obama. I'm just saying, just thought I'd throw that out again. So people understand that that actually did happen. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, so we had, uh, the conference. Um, I wanted to, where did I want to put it? Um, is it here? Gosh darn it. I couldn't find it. But what I do have for you is something pretty interesting. This interview with Newt, which I do not like that, um, was quite interesting. Uh, not allowed, not allowed, not allowed to talk about George Soros. I mean, what? Blatantly not allowed? I guess because Murdoch said no. Left wing. It's, it's violence. Yeah. It's so true. <clears throat> they represent everybody, Harris. right? Speaker Gingrich, I know yeah. you have a final thought for us. Yeah. Look, the number one problem in almost all these cities is George Soros elected left wing anti-police, pro-criminal district attorneys who refuse to pe keep people locked up. Uh, just yesterday, they put somebody back on the street who's wanted for two different murders in New York City. Uh, you cannot solve this problem, and both Harris 
and Biden have talked very proudly about what they call progressive district attorneys. Progressive district attorneys are anti-police, pro-criminal, and overwhelmingly elected with George Soros' money, and they're a major cause of the violence we're seeing because they keep putting the violent criminals back on the street. I'm not sure we need to bring George Soros into this. (laughs) I was going to say you'd get the last word, Speaker. (laughs) He, he, He paid for it. I mean, why can't we discuss the fact that millions no, of dollars? I, I agree with but Melissa. George Soros doesn't need to be a part of this conversation. What? Okay. Okay. So it's verboten. All right. We're going to get awkward. So awkward. Yep. Okay. We're going to move on. Uh, a historic day at the White House. We covered it from stem to stem. How awkward. He doesn't need to be part of the conversation. Why not? He's funding all of this. Why not? Why can't we have him part of the conversation? I don't understand. Why not? Why are you protecting him? Who are you to say that we can't talk about a criminal within our nation? This was an exceptional, exceptional little graphic put together by In the Matrix. I need to share it. This is so good. So, so good. Hold on. Here we go. Soros prosecutorial power grab. Here's where he's dropped money to get people elected. Well, they left out Seattle in this one, North Dakota in this one, Minnesota in this one. There's more, right? But look, this is just some. Here's the Islamic Terrorist Network in America. Whoop, Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda. Look at all these. We forgot North Dakota and Minnesota on this one. Um, again, we forget key states, key, key states. Um, remember this one has a flag that represents the, um, United States of America. You should look into flags and what they mean. This was a pretty nice put together thing. A few missing things, but nevertheless, good, right? Now I wanted to, where is it? I know I'm going to find it. Ah. This one, Camarota, remember how she got rid of her Twitter? I actually, <laughs> I actually took a bow for that one. Take a listen to this. Um, you know, there is less of a, of a state action against our police department, which gives us legal mechanisms in the very short term. You know, there's lessons from all over the country, all over the world that we're looking to, yeah. um, to take immediate steps while we work toward building the systems that we would need to imagine that, that future. Do you understand that the word dismantle or police free also makes some people nervous? For instance, what if in the middle of the night, my home is broken into? Who do I call? Yes, I mean, I, I hear that loud and clear from a lot of my neighbors. And I know, and, and myself too, and I know that that comes from a place of privilege because... Remember, she's the Minneapolis City Council president. Minneapolis, you voted her in. You have every right to storm that place and get her out. I don't care what your local laws say. You can change them. No one says go and physically take her out, right? You could go down there and demand that you change your city's charter and get her out. She's obviously not representing you. Obviously. So do it. For those of us for whom the system is working, I think we need to step back and imagine what it would feel like to already live in that reality, 
where calling the police may mean more harm is done. And so we have a state action against our police department, which more harm is done. Like what kind of harm are you talking about? Are you talking about uh, maybe the person with the gun is um, uh, not, you know, going to get shot, but they'll shoot you. Pretty interesting, isn't it? So hold on. I wanted to go to Lacey um, Johnson, who's running against Ilhan Omar and his tweet about his staffers that were murdered seems um, very strange. So he says, we are talking with the parents of the young victims of the shootings on Monday. We are reaching out to provide help, secure resources and meet their needs in the time of grief, sorrow and trauma. We have also been in discussions with members of the community who have detailed knowledge of the sources of uh, the sometimes violence in our community. We have been in contact with local and national officials to both, both sort out the situation and discuss short and long term solutions. We will have further information soon. In the meantime, we refer everyone to the statement issued to the media yesterday. We can confirm that the victims of this senseless violence were young, motivated, paid, so staffers, members of the Lacey Johnson campaign outreach team. Today, we are shocked and saddened to learn of this senseless act of violence. It is shocking and unnecessary acts of violence like this prove why we why change is more needed than ever in our community. The shootings did not occur during a campaign event or outreach, and we do not believe it has any connection with their work to the campaign. Well, it totally does. Ilhan Omar has uh, used uh, Somali gangs to intimidate her opposition, and that is well-documented throughout the years, even with her local race. So the importance here that we see is that two young staffers at the age of 17 were shot. They were Republicans, conservatives, and running against Ilhan Omar. And I can almost guarantee that this was not a coincidence, and this was another act by Ilhan Omar's camp. I say that. I say that. I can't provide any evidence of that. Uh, that is my opinion. And it, unless you can show me different, she has done this again and again. She has used, uh, you know, her tribal type connections to bully people before. There's no way you can convince me any different unless you bring someone forward that says it was random. I'm, I say that. That's my opinion. You could, you could like it. You could not like it. She's done this before again and again from her local race to her congressional race. She has done it. So, um, uh, there is nothing that anybody can say that will change my mind unless I get a confession <laughs> that is not under strain from another person. But in the end, we may indeed find that the person no longer exists, you know, might commit suicide and stuff. You know, that always happens, right? That whole, oh, I'm going to commit suicide right now because uh, that's better. That's what they do. See, I'll tell you how they work. Let me let me tell you something about cancel culture. So I've been telling you that I've been following the Isaac Cappy story for a very long time. And I have someone uh, that's very dear to me that has been following that because they were actually really, really good friends. And what I noticed was is what they do is they harass you. They humiliate you for the purpose of you coming to that brink where you need to commit suicide. 
And they do that in order to kill your spirit and, and, and yield. Now, Isaac Cappy was constantly depressed. He was very upset with all the harassment he was getting from the same group, same group that targeted Millie and myself and Patrick Berge. And the point is to bring you to that threshold. Because once you're at that threshold and, I don't know, you fall off a bridge onto oncoming traffic, people will just assume it's a suicide. And no one will look further into it if they put you in the right box. Mm-hmm. And hence why suicides are not always suicides. Because uh, it is something that they do to put you in that position so it can be made to see like a suicide. Oh, you're really, really uh, upset and you were very, very sad and, you know, you went through torment and you just couldn't stand it anymore. So you took your life. You know, that's that's what they say. And that's how they work. I'm just letting you know on that one. So let me show you this about what the Department of Justice is doing, uh, well, charging Portland officials over riots. Uh, This was just breaking. Uh, On that note, I just wanted to say, you know, Kamala Harris, she helped bail out someone that was found guilty of penetrating a child. A child. Mm. Those are the people they have on the ballot. Let's just let that sink in for a second, okay? Fox News has learned the Justice Department has looked at possible charges, criminal or civil, against local officials in Portland, Oregon. This after weeks of clashes between federal law enforcement and violent people in the streets. Uh, Following reports in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal now that Attorney General William Barr looked into having Seattle's Democratic mayor brought up on criminal charges for allowing a police-free zone inside her city. Dan Springer with a reporting from Seattle. Dan? Hi, Harris. The DOJ spokesman denied that federal prosecutors ever looked into going after uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin, but admits they did look into possible criminal or civil charges against officials in Portland. The New York Times quoted unnamed sources who allege Attorney General Bill Barr asked federal prosecutors to look into charging Mayor Durkin with a federal crime for her role in allowing protesters to occupy a Seattle precinct and the neighborhood around it. For weeks, Durkin called the occupation a peaceful protest, but that changed, of course, after a series of shootings that left two people dead. The Times report also says Barr wanted prosecutors to consider filing sedition charges against some of the Antifa anarchists who were the most violent protesters. The law says there's a seditious conspiracy if two or more persons conspire to overthrow the government of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years. We have reached out to the Portland mayor's office for comment on the new information that Mayor Ted Wheeler's actions were being heavily scrutinized by the Justice Department. Many in the Trump administration were very critical of Wheeler for not doing more to stop the violence outside the federal courthouse. Wheeler was tear-gassed and shouted down one of those nights as he tried to show solidarity with the protesters. For her part, Mayor Denny Durkin tweeted, This report is chilling and the latest abuse of power from the Trump administration. But Brian Moran, the U.S. attorney who covers Seattle, said in a statement today, at no time has anyone at the department communicated to me that Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin is, was, or should be the subject of a criminal investigation or should be charged with any federal crime related to the CHOP. As U.S. attorney, I would have been aware of such an investigation. It's worth noting that Durkin is also getting hate from the other side. She's facing a recall effort over the Seattle Police Department's use of tear gas during the riots. Harris? 
Dan Springer, thank you very much. Our views coming oh, your wait, way. That's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so now we're going to get sedition. Now we're going to get the law applied because the law isn't just for the people. It is for those in office, if not more for those in office, right? Now, it's quite interesting how we're seeing all of this pan out. Uh, the actual Democrats are scared of their own base, and they should be, because it is terrifying to know that you have mercenaries supporting you. I mean, look how it worked out for them uh, with ISIS, right? Didn't work out too good, did it? Wasn't very good, was it? They, they lost control of that, didn't they? And that's something that, uh, you know, people need to understand that this is not a game. It is not a game. And the more people see this as a game, the more it's not being taken seriously by the layman term of seriously. Okay. So I'll tell you, here's, here's why. And I think even though I dislike, here's Trey Gowdy making a very valid point on Hannity. Take a listen to this. Interesting. Contributor, former Republican congressman. He's now reformed. He's actually filled on on the show. I don't watch the show when I'm away. Otherwise, I'm not off. Uh, Trey Gowdy is with us. Sir, good to see you. When you look at you the too. rhetoric of Joe, police become the enemy and we're going to redirect funds and Kamala saying, oh, applauding 150 million cut in the LAPD and now they're assassinating attempting to assassinate police officers, thousands injured, 45 cops dead this year on the job. Uh, do you believe that rhetoric has an impact? Of course it does. I mean, you know, the media wants us to believe that only Republican rhetoric, that, that's the only thing that can in, incite violence. Sean, we've had 10,000 arrests this year connected with the riders, $2 billion in property damage, We've got mobs chanting, we hope you die, to two police officers who were almost executed in the line of work, while you got other folks blocking access to emergency medical care for those deputies. And yet the New York Times and the Washington Post and those on the left want us to believe that these protests are mostly peaceful. If $2 billion and 10,000 arrests and chanting, we hope you die, is mostly peaceful, I hope it doesn't ever get violent. Uh but the reality is, how do you have an entire convention and not mention the violence in, in city streets? How do they do not somehow bifurcate their, their twisted socialist brains into denying what we see before our eyes happening and reject the help that the president is begging them to take? He begged again last night on that idiotic interview with uh, Georgie. They're terrified of their base, Sean, and it was only when it became apparent apparent that they're losing, you know, independent voters, middle of the road voters, because they refuse to acknowledge that the country is on fire. They don't want to alienate their base. They don't want to alienate the people that are setting things on fire and looting innocent property and store owners. So th that that's the conundrum they have. Do we speak out against this and alienate our base? Um, what the, the only reason Joe said anything is because the polls are tightening and they're losing on the issue of public safety. They thought they could run the pandemic all the way through the election. And now the country's on fire and you got cops almost being assassinated and you got mobs chanting, we hope you die. It, even Joe can't ignore that. 
Well, I'm not really sure because uh, it doesn't seem exactly there. Now, I don't know if you're getting the same questions I'm getting. Everywhere I go, people agree, disagree. What's up with Joe? Um, I don't know. I hire a lot of people. If you want to work in this industry, you better have some urgency to work on my radio or TV show. You know why? Because this is a hard job and you got to be on your game. I don't I don't think I'd hire Joe Biden to work on this show because I don't think he has the energy to keep up. I don't think he has the energy to work in a busy restaurant. You getting the same questions I'm getting? Uh, I am getting that question, but but more than anything, I'm getting who is Kamala Harris, uh, because I think that there is a very real likelihood she will have a disproportionate role in the administration if he wins. We've seen Pelosi put you know, coronavirus relief on hold. People are familiar with Chuck Schumer. I mean, even if Joe Biden were to win, he will not be running government. I, I, you can watch an interview and it's painful to watch. Uh, he will not be running the country, even if he prevails in November. Well, Ocasio-Cortez, I, I think she gave a very honest statement. She's pretty much admitting yeah, we can manipulate the hell out of him. All right. How'd you like hosting the show? I missed you, and so did your viewers. But I'm grateful <laughs> for the chance. Passing the torch. All right. So here's where we go to uh, our president to wrap this um segment of Tory says up with a video he just shared while I was on air quite the big ten made of I love this I love this seriously I love this take a listen football back I've been calling for football to be back including big ten big ten get with it open up your season big ten the college football season should be canceled it should be canceled today right now Michigan's lagging Great football, great coach, great team. We want a governor that's going to let Michigan play Big Ten football this year. Do you believe Michigan and Michigan State should be playing football games this fall? The Big Ten made a decision based on the best epidemiology. Let's open it up. Let's play football. Do you believe that they made the right call? Uh, Greeny, I really do. I, I support the decision. When you look at the uh, the medical information, you look at the statistics, you look at the numbers. At your confidence level that there will be a college football season this year. Zero percent chance. This is a really significant development. It is big news about the Big Ten. Uh, big Ten football is coming back. Many of life's most valuable lessons are learned on the field of competition and the ability to overcome adversity. You stayed in the fight. You finish the fight. Often bumpy roads lead to beautiful places. Never give up. Never lose faith. Never, ever quit. Just keep forging ahead. To give everything you've got. Victory is always within reach. Thank you, President Trump. And this isn't just about football, you guys. It's about everything. Every single challenge you have. I've said this before. If life was a straight road, God knows when I drove across Montana, I was falling asleep five minutes into it because it, I could see the horizon, right? I could see the horizon. So it was like, damn, this is boring. But it was a lot of fun going, driving through, uh, you know, the most fun I've had and, and it, and it was terrifying was a driving in Pakistan. I was actually just a passenger. Damn, their roads are scary AF. I'm telling you. Like, 
And these people drive like it's no big deal. I'm sure you've seen the videos where they have like these passes on like cliffs and there's like buses with 20, 20 people hanging out from it. Right. But it was okay. It was terrifying. I have to admit I was like one moment from, from wetting my pants and it wasn't even on a cliff. Okay. It wasn't on a cliff, but hard roads, difficult journeys get us seasoned. So victory is better. If you know, and you can see the horizon, it's no fun. Competition is what we strive for and thrive on. Uh, a lot of people, I, I, I remember when I went back to school, uh, when I came stateside, I had a lot on my plate. I, I was still working and then I had a public facing job and then I went to school. I had kids and I remember I'd have assignments to do, papers to do. I work best under pressure only because it's those bumps in the roads that make life beautiful and that stress and the racing against the clock in the nth hour. And so, you know, that doesn't just tell you about football, but you see, look at the states of the Big Ten. Look at what they wanted to do. They wanted to eliminate a big industry with a lot of big money, right? For what? Think about it. That's what you should be thinking about. Why would they do that? First of all, I did tell you months ago that the actual rich people, the big honchos, the ones you see donning the jets, are the ones that are the most broke. You have money and they don't. So in order to make money, they need to make you broke to allow them to make money off of you. The deep state has zero dollars if you're not the one allowing them to make the dollars off of your back. Now, Lindsey Graham, many years late, says that James Comey will testify. What do you mean testify? Issuing subpoenas for Clapper, Brennan, and Comey. Testifying for what? So you're going to parade them in front of people, prolong this in front of people, and then throw out like you're a hero, Lindsay? No, man. You know what? I've said that after the elections, I'm going to start with every single state in alphabetical order, but I might just start with his state just because he deserves it most. He deserves it the most to be removed from his throne and empowering the people of his state to take control of their state back. That's that's a definite, because this, even though a lot will cheer from what he says, it's a spit in our face. It's disgusting, actually. Even though he's getting the job done, still a spit in our face. News about who uh, you have invited to your committee. Uh, yeah, the day, the day of reckoning is upon us when it comes to crossfire hurricane. James Comey has agreed to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee on September the 30th without a subpoena. I appreciate Mr. Comey coming before the committee. He will be respectfully treated, but ask hard questions. We're negotiating with McCabe, Mr. McCabe. We're hoping to get him without a subpoena. Time will tell. Mueller has declined the invitation of the committee to appear to explain his report uh, after the Horowitz uh, report. He says he doesn't have enough time, but September the 30th, 30th, we'll have Mr. Comey before the committee, and I look forward to it. 
You're going to accept that answer from Robert Mueller in light of 27 phones we believe were erased because everybody accidentally put in the wrong passcode repeatedly. And by the way, I never heard that that locks up a phone or erases a phone. Have you ever heard about that? I've dropped phones in the ocean. I've actually dropped one in a toilet bowl once, Uh, but I never used bleach pit. Um, And I've had to replace phones because I lose them. I've actually lost phones. Yeah, it sounds fishy as hell. We're going to ask the people who did the erasing, but I'm going to ask the Department of Justice and the Inspector General to look at this. But I've been telling your viewers for a long time that we would try to have an accounting for what happened with Crossfire Hurricane. How did it get so off the rails? How was the FISA court misled multiple times? Well, that day has come. No, that day has come because the president today on Constitution Day gave the decree to the DNI and the FBI to D-class. I mean, I'm proud of our committee. We will also interview the people who interviewed the subsource and uh, we're getting to the bottom of what happened and we'll have a hearing on September 30th with Mr. Comey and hopefully Mr. McCabe will come in. He's out all over the place. We've invited Strzok to come. He's selling a book. We'll see if Mr. Strzok will come without a subpoena, but I look forward to this hearing. I think it will be important to the American people. I'd like Jim Comey to come on my radio and TV show. I'll give him three (laughs) hours of radio and an hour on TV. I have a lot of questions. Now, he was warned that the dossier was dirty before he signed the first warrant, that Hillary paid for it, didn't put that in the account. It does say verified. We now know it's unverifiable. He signed three of them. After he signed that it was verified (laughs) in October, uh, he told Donald Trump in December, the president-elect, that it's salacious and unverified. So he lied either in October or he lied in December. And we also know for sure, don't we, that the subsource of Steele uh, said, no, none of this is true uh, in January of 2017. And Comey went on to sign two more warrants. Is that a fact, Senator? Well, it's a fact that in January of 2017 and March of 2017, the Russian subsource told the FBI that it was bar talk hearsay. Stop one second. Listen to why he's irrelevant. Because the president does things at the right time. Here we go. I talked about it earlier and I found the link. Give me a second so I can pull it up. Issued today, September 17th, at the request Statement from the press secretary, okay? At the request of, of a number of committees of Congress and for reasons of transparency, the president has directed the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Justice, including the FBI, to provide for immediate declassification of the following materials. Pages 10 through 12 and 1734 of the June 2017 application to the FISA court in the matter of Carter Page. All FBI reports of interviews with Bruce Orr prepared in connection with the Russia investigation and all FBI reports of interviews prepared in connection with all Carter Page FISA applications. In addition, President Donald J. Trump has directed the Department of Justice, including the FBI, to publicly release all text messages relating to the Russia investigation without redaction of James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, and Bruce Orr. So now let's listen to what this clown said yesterday. Let's continue. Not verified. Uh, We know that happened. Now, who did the intel analysts and the case agent tell? 
We're going to talk to them in the next uh, week to 10 days. But here's my point. I appreciate Mr. Comey coming in. We've been asking each other a lot of questions. It's about time to ask the people in charge what the hell happened. That day is coming. I promised your viewers we would get to this day. And stay tuned. A it's couple of weeks time. from now, we'll know a lot more. Right, let me ask you a question. If if I told you that all that I erased my phone because I put in the wrong password, do you believe that cockamamie story from Robert Mueller's team? Because I don't believe a word of it. Well, common sense would tell you that multiple people erasing phones that are under investigation is suspicious as hell. Horowitz is doing a review of Crossfire Hurricane, and this could be obstruction of justice. If you know that your phone is going to be looked at for investigative purposes, you erase it, uh, then you got a problem. We'll see what happens there, too. But stay tuned. Okay, now let's go to this. This is an article I wrote at Big League Politics. I'm going to take you there. And it's actually titled, This is what the declassified FISA documents will reveal. So here we are. It was written on September 20th, 2018. So close for that Delta, right? So close. I like the two-year ones. They're my favorite. (laughs) They are my favorite. So here we are with them. And I'm pointing out to people who's not there anymore, who's been fired, who's been signing. So if we remember, the president said he wanted pages 10, 12, 10 through 12, 17 through 34 of the June 2017 application. So let's go to the June one. This is April. This is June 2017. So the final, the final FISA renewal happened in June 2017. And the only new hire was Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan. So here it is. <clears throat> here we have uh, Pompeo was promoted to Secretary of State. <laughs> Mattis, what did I say? Caution. Coates, what did I say? Caution. McMaster, fired. Tillerson, fired. Director of the FBI, fired. But there were signatures. Deputy of National, Deputy Director of National Intelligence, his signature should go there. So here they are. Now, I said, um, well, the most important one I'm going to just tell you, hold on, is the difference between them. Hold on. Before, um, which one was the one with the extra pages? It's important to note and observe that Andrew McCabe signed the primary FICE application and all three subsequent renewals, just so you know. Uh, let's see. Uh, one key person to pay attention is Dana Bonte, who resigned as U.S. Attorney to the FBI on October 27, 2017. Hold on. I think I put it in this article, right? Um, man, did they edit this article? Pretty sure I had some stuff in here that was, um, see, when you don't have it on your own thing. Oh, and here is the questions that they asked in 2016. Pretty interesting, right? This happened. <laughs> oh, it's so stupid. Hold on, let me see. Um, foremost telling portions are these. So I wanted to tell you that the first FICE application that they did on Carter Page um, compared to the second application, especially Flynn's, 
were padded with a lot of extra junk and pork, right? So they can get it signed the second time. And that was in January of 2017, right? Um, that they had it. So, uh, this one says that this was authorized up until April and that was signed on January, uh, 2017 by the other judge, the one that had cocktails, right? And so that was supposed to expire then. Then this was supposed to be signed then. And then after April, it was supposed to read, uh, had to be redone in. So it was the first one was October. The second one was January. The third one was April and the other one was, um, June. So these people, all of them, and I was kind of right on all of these clothes. Um, they're in a lot of trouble because, uh, this was supposed to last up till September 2017. So up until September 2017, they were able to spy on Carter Page. I'm just, um, pointing that out so you understand how to read these things. And I mentioned like who and what. I said both Dan Coates and Rod Rosenstein have continuously dodged the questions about whether President Donald J. Trump asked them to intervene in or downplay the FBI's ongoing Russia investigation in the past, though the pair have remained consistent, saying that they have never felt pressure to act inappropriately. Remember, these are the people, along with Mattis and others, talking about 25th Amendment stuff and getting wired up, just saying. Uh Mattis claims that his run for the 2020 on a ticket separate to that of President Trump is just a rumor. But he said, <laughs> I just threw that in there so people know that. And um, and this is the same General Mattis who butted heads with President Trump on matters like pulling out of the Iran deal and moving the U.S. embassy to, to Jerusalem. Uh, these are these are things that, uh, you know, a lot of people have missed. I, I put a lot of stuff in my articles for people to see. Uh in the future, I guess. But see, that's so awesome, right? That on the 20th, they're probably going to give it. I mean, he gave the order today. Will they do it today or will they give me that two year? I don't know. We'll see. Now, uh, to end this, uh, President Trump actually made a very bold statement claiming that the CDC director made an error on uh, the vaccine timeline. I just wanted to close this up today so you have that. So you're not listening to fake news. Remember, we only listen to the president and ourselves. John Roberts live for us on the North Lawn. And John, what are we expecting from the candidates today? Well, you could probably expect to hear more about coronavirus and vaccines and mask wearing and everything. The president headed to Mosinee, Wisconsin. The Real Clear Politics average still shows Biden with a substantial lead there, about six points. But the president does believe that he can bring that within striking distance for Election Day. And then Joe Biden will be in his birthplace, Scranton, Pennsylvania, which the president likes to remind is no longer his home for a CNN town hall. The president was there for an ABC town hall on Tuesday. The president, White House aides, meantime, pushing back hard against what the CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, said yesterday about vaccines potentially not being available to the general public until next summer. At a briefing yesterday, I asked the president what he thought about that timeline. He said that the vaccine for the general public likely would not be available until probably next summer, maybe even early fall. Are you comfortable with that timeline? No, I, I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. And I called him. And he didn't tell me that. And I think he got the message maybe confused. Maybe it was stated incorrectly. No, we're ready to go immediately as the vaccine is announced. And it could be announced in October, could be announced a little bit after October. 
The president told me that after Redfield said that to Congress, he called the CDC director to ask him why he said it. The White House insists that while high-risk individuals and frontline workers will get the first crack at the vaccine, there will be 700 million doses available by the end of the first quarter. That would be the end of March 2021 number of months before Redfield said it would be available. The president also criticizing Joe Biden for engaging in what he called anti-vax rhetoric. Biden yesterday casting doubt on anything that comes out of the White House before the election. Listen here. So let me be clear. I trust vaccines. I trust scientists, but I don't trust Donald Trump. The White House also pushing back against what Dr. Redfield said about mask wearing. Redfield testifying yesterday that masks may be more effective at controlling the spread of coronavirus than a vaccine. Here's the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, this morning. When you look at if if mass is the panacea for everything, then we can have everybody going back to work if they'll just wear a mask. And I don't know that that Dr. Redfield would say that. I can tell you other doctors don't say that. But if that's the way that we open back our economy and get everybody back to work, uh, I will gladly wear my mask each and every day if that's what uh, what uh, makes the difference. And it doesn't. Redfield clarifying his testimony in a pair of tweets yesterday, writing, quote, I 100 percent believe in the importance of vaccines and the importance in particular of a COVID-19 vaccine. A COVID-19 vaccine is the thing that will get Americans back to normal everyday life. He went on to say the best defense we currently have against this virus are the important mitigation efforts of wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing and being careful about crowds. It is true that HHS and the FDA will take the lead in the development, uh, the uh, approval and distribution of a vaccine. But for there to be such a split between the White House and the CDC director is indeed unusual. Joe Biden. Well, it depends which CDC you're talking about, the private one, the private slash public one, the one, the congressional one. Which one? Which one? Because they just used it interchangeably. Right. So on that note, I'm going to let you guys go. But I, I, I see a lot of comments here people deciphering who I am and who I'm not. I mean, if you're listening carefully enough, everybody tells you who they are. So on that note, on that note, God bless everyone and happy Constitution Day. Father's dead.